Hello, curious, inquiring minds, deep divers of the darkest, depraved corners of humanity. My name is Samuel Abels, and I shall be your host for this evening's rather twisted affairs. For years, the world has seen horrific misdeeds against its inhabitants. It has seen blood spilled and innocent life snuffed out. Even if the victims have not been particularly innocent in their waking lives, however, it should not be up to us to judge them for it. Instead, those of us whose belly has awoken the great beast of curiosity should instead aim for one common goal at the end of the day, and that's shedding light on these unfortunate, unsolved crimes against their fellow man. If at all possible, perhaps even lead somebody in the right direction and put these heinous acts to bed once and for all. I'm Sam Abels, and this is The Sam Project. Episode 1, The Raging Narcissist. The 1960s. For the world, it was a time of change, of radical social revolution. The baby boomers had long since returned from their harrowing tours abroad in Europe, paving way for a metaphorical boom in post-war births, and these kids grew to view things markedly different from those considered to be their elders. To put it short and sweet, the Vietnam War was out, and the concept of free love was in. On the eastern side of the San Francisco Bay, the cities of Berkeley's aptly named Berkeley University found itself at the center of the incoming social shifts, its campus hosting a variety of protests from the years 1964 to 1967. Ironically enough, the region that swallows Berkeley within its gaping, ever-expansive mall is where we shall find ourselves dissecting our story this evening, the San Francisco Bay Area, where we will soon come to learn that not all changes are for the better. killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. These were the words of an unidentified madman who struck terror into the hearts and minds of the inhabitants of the Bay Area from late 1968 to late 1969 and onward. He went by the name the Zodiac, targeting young couples in remote areas and violently attacking them without any clear reason as to why. For years, the Zodiac's bizarre, almost theatrical shadow loomed over an entire region, if not an entire state. With each correspondence he mailed, upping the ante with threats of further violence if certain demands were not met to his liking. But where did this all start, you might be wondering. How did one person pull off such relentless violence and terroristic threats and still manage to evade identification and capture from any of the various law enforcement agencies that were involved in this case? What was the end game for him? First Blood The story of the Zodiac Killer's reign of terror begins with two innocent teenagers out on their first date together. Their names were David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen. 17-year-old David Faraday was an all-American kid, a member of the Eagle Scouts, responsible 
and even partook in his high school, Vallejo High School's wrestling team. At some point in time, he would come to be introduced to 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen, a young girl who attended Hogan High School in Vallejo. She was outgoing, a popular girl with multiple friends, and skilled artistically. The two first encountered each other at a youth function, and from then on out, they hit it off. But this was not without its own troubles. This blossoming relationship would soon enough attract the unwanted attention of another teenage boy that liked Betty Lou. At one time, this boy even confronted David and the two argued over her. However, despite the drama that came and went with this individual, David pressed onward and eventually the two were set to embark on their first date on December 20th, 1968. According to all accounts, David and Betty Lou were going to be attending a pre-holiday concert at Hogan High School, and David Faraday, being the reliable young man who sought out to be, promised her parents to have their daughter back home by 11 p.m. Some other accounts have these two planning to meet up and go to a party with some other adolescents afterward. But sadly, this is what we know did not happen that night. Instead, the two departed from these alleged plans and opted to drive out to a rather secluded area known to the local kids as a lover's lane on Lake Herman Road in Benicia, not far from the town of Vallejo. Nobody knows what happened in the interim, but at some point in time, another unexpected, unwelcome party decided to pull up close to the couple. Their aim? To kill. According to the 76-page report compiled by the Solano County Sheriff's Office, Betty Lou Jensen saw five gunshot wounds to the right side of her back, and David Faraday had been shot once in the head. Jensen was already dead by the time the police arrived to the scene of the carnage. Faraday, however, managed to survive for a period of time, and the police were prepared to follow him in route to the hospital in order to later ask him questions, potentially learn more information about the attack. Unfortunately, despite the best efforts of the medics that night, David Faraday succumbed to his wounds and passed away, erasing any hope investigators had at gaining answers as to why this horrid crime took place to begin with. For the life of them, the police could not glean one single motive for their murders. There were no signs there had been a robbery, as Faraday had still had his wallet on him when he was discovered. There was no indication this attack had been sexual in nature, either. The boy that Faraday had previously quarreled with, a young man by the name of Richard Burton, was questioned after the allegations of threatening Betty Lou prior to her and David's outing that fateful evening came to light. But it was quickly determined that Richard, despite all the misgivings he had over his former girlfriend's newfound relationship with David Faraday, had a strong alibi and then been at home, eating a TDV dinner and watching a program starring Bob Hope with his family. That, coupled with this, his mother's reportedly strict rules for her son, ensured that he would have no meaningful window of time to have slipped out and committed the murders. So, once again, the authorities came to a dead end, and the trail went cold. 
But despite the brutal nature of what happened to the two teen lovers five days before Christmas, nobody in Vallejo could have anticipated they would soon discover a budding serial killer was in their midst. The First Correspondences Nearly a year after Faraday and Jensen were slain, three news agencies based out of the San Francisco Bay Area each received a letter and a portion of a three-part cipher that, the letter writer claimed, would lead to his identity being revealed. In the letters, the anonymous writer claimed responsibility for the double murders on Lake Herman Road, as well as the July 4, 1969 murder of 22-year-old waitress Darlene Farron at Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, and the attempted murder of her friend, 19-year-old Mike Majot. He stated that to prove he was their killer, he would state some facts which only he and the police were aware of. The anonymous psychopath went on to detail the violence he had alleged he'd committed, sharing with the press information that pertained to both of the attacks, detailing the brand of ammunition he employed in his pre-Christmas killings, the popular hunting ammo brand, Western Super X. He went on to state that in both killings he used the same brand of ammo and detailed the positions of the bodies, as well as where his victims had been shot. The San Francisco Examiner, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Vallejo Times Herald all received letters with similar disturbing contents to them. As mentioned prior, each of these news agencies received a portion of a cipher from this individual who demanded that each agency print their respective portion of it on the front page of their papers by Friday, August 1st, where he would go on a kill rampage and cruise around killing people until Sunday or until he had killed a dozen people. The killer closed each letter with a strange circle with what appeared to be crosshairs in the center of it. A calling card, perhaps? One thing's for certain, however. This mysterious letter writer had almost childlike handwriting and extremely poor spelling and grammar. However, in spite of his more amateurish aspects, he still managed to stump the vast majority of people with his three-part cipher. No one, not even the FBI or expert military code breakers, were able to figure out the demented killer system. So, for some time, it went unsolved. That is, until a high school economics teacher, Don Hardin, and his wife, who both enjoyed word games and puzzles, decided to take on his challenge and decode the message for themselves. The Hardens initially suspected that the killer would most likely start his cipher out with the word I, and inevitably the word kill, killing, or some variants would crop up. It was clear to the Hardens that this was someone who just couldn't help but gloat about the evil he did. And they proved that by decoding his message, combining each piece of the three-part puzzle to form a message as unhinged as its very creator. I like killing people because it's so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It's even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. 
The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and all that I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name, because you will try to slow or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. So the killer of Faraday, Jensen, and Majot did not give the press, the police, and the public at large any hints at his identity. But then again, should we be at all surprised? Someone capable of displaying such callousness towards the sacredness of human life itself, such blatant disregard for his fellow man that he can kill them and not feel one iota of emotion for them, that he can brag and boast of his wrongdoings as if there's some sort of perverted catharsis for him, and he refuses to be stopped. Should we all be surprised he wouldn't have revealed something as crucial as his identity? I think you already know the answer to that question. We all do. The same man, just a month ago, ruthlessly shot Darlene Farron and Mike Majot, then made his way to a payphone not far from the Vallejo Police Department's headquarters to report his misdeeds. In a calm, distant voice, the caller relayed to 911 dispatcher Nancy Slobber exactly what he did. I want to report a double murder. If you go one mile east on Columbus Parkway to a public park, you'll find kids in a brown car. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. To this day, the former 911 dispatcher says that voice still haunts her. Like the blackest rose with the sharpest and most violent of thorns, the murderer was gaining steam by the time he carried out his second crime. He was upping the ante with each bout of violence that flowed forth from his mind and translated into his actions, and he was determined to make a name for himself. By August 1969, he had sent another grammatically deficient correspondence, this time giving himself the name Zodiac and bragging about the messes that he claimed he used. He actually used a small pencil flashlight attached to the barrel of his gun in order to shoot his targets in the darkness that shrouded his December 1968 murders. This was in contradiction to the police theorizing that he could see the silhouettes of Jensen and Faraday on the horizon. Contradiction is something that the Zodiac seemed to thrive on. As time went on, it became clear he held a particular disdain for law enforcement. He loved the attention. He loved the chase. And what he would do next would perhaps be his strangest, boldest, most disturbing move yet. Death by the Lake. The date was Saturday, September 27th, 1969. It was a sunny, clear day in Napa, California and college students Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard decided to head out and spend a relaxing day near the area's historic scenic Lake Berryessa. The two sat side by side on a picnic blanket, admitting, admiring the beauty of the lake's calm blue waters, never for a moment thinking that their peace could be interrupted. During the course of their outing at the lake, Brian heard a noise from close by and asked Cecilia to check and see who or what was causing the sound. Cecilia would come to notice an unknown man ducking behind a tree. 
and they were both quick to dismiss his actions as harmless. Harmless, that is, until he started moving towards their spot. In the final days of her life, Cecilia Shepard would recall herself panicking, pointing out to Brian that this man was coming closer and that he was armed with a gun, but that wasn't all. Before he stepped out from beyond the tree, the mystery man had slipped on something of a homemade costume, consisting of a black executioner's hood, clip-on sunglasses, and a black bib emblazoned at the same crossed circle the killer that called himself the Zodiac used at the end of each correspondence he sent to the press. But Brian and Cecilia, both stricken with shock at what was transpiring, did not know this. Not at the time. This man wielded a gun and wore a belt containing both the holster for the weapon in question and a sheath for a knife. He told them he was planning to rob them for their money and steal their car to make a getaway across the border to Mexico. He claimed to have escaped from a prison in either Colorado or Montana and that he had shot two guards on his way out. He also made it clear that he wasn't afraid to kill again. He forced Cecilia to tie Brian's hands with some pre-cut clothesline he had brought along with him on his belt. Once this was completed, he then moved to deal with Cecilia, tying her up in a similar fashion to Brian. The assailant then gave both of them the verbal command to lay in face-down position so he could move on to tying their feet. Brian protested against their treatment, citing the possibility for cold weather developing in the nighttime. The assailant attempted to interject, but Brian persisted with his nervous babbling until the criminal aimed his gun at point-blank range at the young man. I told you to get down, he said, according to Brian's later recollections of the event. Despite this, he asked one final question before it all went awry, asking his captor if the gun he held was indeed loaded. The masked criminal opened the cartridge of the gun and both physically and verbally commanded the inquiring Hartnell that, yes, indeed it was. Then, without so much as a warning, the masked stranger withdrew the knife he had sheathed on his hip and he began to stab the defenseless Hartnell multiple times. He then turned his attention over to Cecilia, who he stabbed multiple times as well. Breathing heavily and laughing quietly when he committed this heinous act. When the dark deed was finished, the fiend made his way over to Brian Hartnell's white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia where he pulled out a black marker and proceeded to face the outside of the passenger door with a sinister message for the authorities in the area. It read, Vallejo, 122068, 7469, September 27th, 69, 6.30, by knife. The gruesome scene was discovered by a fisherman who was in the area who then alerted the authorities and took Brian and Cecilia to the hospital. Around 7.40 p.m., the Napa Police Department would receive a phone call from a local car wash's telephone booth. The caller was a younger man who spoke in an eerily calm tone. I want to report a double murder. I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of Park Headquarters. They are in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. 
The caller paused, and as David Slate, the Napa police officer on the other end of the call, waited for the man to continue, the stranger's voice grew quieter and simply stated, I'm the one that did it. It was later found that the menacing caller had left the line open and the Napa police were able to trace the call, but by then the man had long since fled the area. The police were able to collect partial palm prints from the phone the killer had used, and at the scene of the crime, they discovered the deep indentations of 10.5-inch wing walker boots, commonly sold at Army-Navy surplus stores and used at Air Force bases. The lead was pursued for some time, but the police sadly came up empty-handed once again, and another body would soon be added to the Zodiac Killer's gruesome tally. Cecilia Shepard passed away two days after the brutal attack, leaving Brian as its sole survivor. From his hospital bed, the brave Hartnell would find the strength within himself to paint a picture of his attacker, running down everything that happened as well as what was running through his mind at the time. The man who attacked them was described as being almost six feet tall, in weight range of about 200 pounds, and according to Brian, had a certain drawl to his speech, but not any particularly identifiable one, such as a southern form. It was more like an impediment, if not a careful, deliberate selection of words to connect the false narrative he was after. But the Zodiac was not done here. In fact, he was far from it. His next victim would be selected in random fashion, breaking from his typical body of victims, but seeing a return to some of his old ways, this time, he was going to strike terror into the city of San Francisco itself. The Cabbie. October 11th, 1969. With Halloween just around the corner, we're all used to tales of ghosts, goblins, monsters, and freaks of all types. 29-year-old cab driver Paul Stein probably saw individuals from all walks of life enter and exit his particular cab but it was not Stein's place to judge. His only requirements were to get a given passenger from point A to point B and collect the fare from his customers. But what Paul picked up on that Saturday night in October could chill you to the very bone more than a sprite or spirit could, because this monster wore human flesh. Driving through San Francisco, another regular night, in his mind, the young Stein picked up a passenger from the intersection of Mason Street and Geary Street. Nothing is known about what happened inside of the taxi cab between Stein and the man who he simply assumed was another customer, but what we do know is this. He wanted Stein to drive him to a rather upscale neighborhood known as Presidio Heights. It is believed that the man initially wished for Stein to head to Washington and Maple Street but they ended up on Washington and Cherry Street instead. Perhaps it was then that Stein realized someone else was driving the situation, so to speak. The San Francisco Police Department and its investigators initially saw this as just a robbery gone wrong. Stein's wallet was recorded as being missing, and he had been shot in the back of the head, killing him upon impact. According to three witnesses, who were mere children at the time, and had the unfortunate experience of observing the coldness humanity had to offer, from inside a nearby house, around 10 p.m., they witnessed what the San Francisco Chronicle initially described as being some kind of scuffle. The man, described as a white man with a blonde crew cut, at least 40, 
and 170 pounds and wearing horn-rimmed glasses, rooted around in the deceased Stein's pockets for anything of value, and then exited the yellow taxi cab. By the children's words, the man then went on to wipe down the outside of the vehicle with a handkerchief before fleeing in the direction of the Presidio. Now here's the particularly bad part in terms of investigative blunders. The police had radioed in an extremely inaccurate description of the person they were looking for. Instead, the cops were being made to search for an African-American male, rather than the description we have come to know as the truth now, and that they would come to know soon enough. The Shirt A couple days after the murder of Stein, a correspondence arrived at the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle from anonymous sender. But this, this was no ordinary piece of mail. Not in the least. Yes, inside the envelope mailed to the Chronicle, there was indeed a letter. But something all the grislier accompanied a blood-spattered, torn-off portion of the victim's shirt he had worn that night. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here's a piece of his bloodstained shirt. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The SF police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly, instead of holding road races with their motorcycles seeing who could make the most noise. The cab drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly, waiting for me to come out of cover. The following paragraph contains some of the most unimaginable malice to ever be conceived from the mind of a human being. It was these words that put the entire city on edge for weeks to come. They were, school children make nice targets. I think I should wipe out the school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tires and pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. He signed it with his now infamous cross-circle symbol. Z340 and the Imposter. While the Zodiac's killing spree went cold, at least to eyes of both the authorities and the general public, he still maintained a shadowy presence over the Bay Area, resurfacing multiple times through letters and taunting holiday cards up until at least 1974. He was a wicked phantom, enchanting, and all the same mortifying the minds of those who dared send their children off to school on public transportation, prowling in the cracks and crevices of thoughts held by young couples eager to have a night out. On the 20th of October, mere days after the threatening letter aimed at San Francisco's school children, an individual called into the Oakland Police Department and demanded either one of two attorneys, F. Lee Bailey or Melvin Belli, go on the Jim Dunbar-hosted program, AM San Francisco. Belli showed up on Jim Dunbar's show. He would go on to request that the phone lines be kept open in case this person tried to reach them. In the end, this would prove to be the correct action, as this person finally was able to reach through and contact the prominent attorney. He went by the name Sam and complained of headaches, blackouts, not unlike the Zodiac Killer, 
The caller blurted out that he was going to kill those kids. The caller wanted to arrange a meeting between himself and Bella outside of Mission Street, located in Daly City, California. But no one arrived. The call wound up being traced to a mental institution and to a man who was not the Zodiac, but a patient of the institution who'd suffered from delusions and a particular obsession with celebrities, which arguably Belli was one at the time, having represented multiple high-profile people and even earning a guest spot on the popular science fiction television series Star Trek. On November 8, 1969, the Zodiac Killer would go on to send out yet another cipher to the San Francisco Chronicle. But unlike the previous cipher, the Z408, which consisted of 408 total characters in length, this particular cipher was short, but far more complex in terms of cracking. Along with the cipher came a jester forget-me-not postcard with the image of what appeared to be a dripping penknife on the front. Within the contents of the greeting card, the Zodiac claimed at least another two murders, never proven, adding in the month of August to his list of months where he'd been active, totaling his body count at seven. Like his first cipher, he asked that this new one be printed on the front page of the paper, implying he would carry out further violence if he did not get what he wanted. It took 51 years, but at last, it appears as though the Zodiac Killer's 340 cipher has finally been cracked by a team of a American software engineer named David Orenchek, Australian-based mathematician Sam Blake, and a computer programmer based out of Belgium by the name of Harl von Eich. This revelation came to the light on the 5th of December, 2020, 15 days before the anniversary of the deaths of Zodiac's first confirmed victims. According to Orenchak, this was a process that required the utmost care and attention, and ultimately, the application of modern code-breaking software sought out specific patterns to spot and work with, eventually breaking the madman's cipher down enough that it could be understood. At least, understood as far as the Zodiac Killer goes. I hope you're having lots of fun trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I'm not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner. Because I now have enough slaves to work for me, where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise, so they are afraid of death. I'm not afraid because I know that my new life will be an easy one in paradise. Death. Clearly, the killer had watched the Jim Dunbar show when it had aired, or at least had been made aware it had happened he wanted to make sure people knew he would never shrivel up and bend like the imposter named Sam portrayed to the media. But for all his ego, his bluster, the Zodiac Killer eventually became all talk and no action more or less. He preferred to taunt, to arrogantly claim a higher body count than what was initially recorded, and to actually get his hands dirty in the coming years. If he didn't kill for the thrill of the hunt, then perhaps there was another motive altogether. The attention he received and the San Francisco Chronicle played right into his hand each and every single time. But more importantly, who was this dark phantom that haunted the Bay Area? Did the police have any sort of suspects? Well, they did. ALA. His name was Arthur Lee Allen. He preferred to be addressed as Lee, 
and he was a rather odd duck, so to speak. A large, hulking menace of a man standing at six feet tall and balding, Lee was initially pointed out by his longtime friend Donald Cheney, who told the police of Alan's dark fantasies he'd voiced to Cheney as early as January of 1969. According to Don Cheney, Alan wanted to call himself Zodiac and target couples. Alan himself had actually been questioned about his whereabouts on the day of the Lake Berryessa attack, and when confronted about a pair of bloody knives that were discovered near his residence, he brushed it off, explaining to the police that he had stopped at a beach barbecue and had eaten some chickens he'd cut up. On paper, Arthur Lee Allen seems like the perfect suspect, right? Well, he did have some things that circumstantially could tilt law enforcement's perspective towards him. For one thing, he was formerly in the Navy. The Zodiac had worn wing walkers, commonly found in Army, Navy, surplus stores. He reportedly was known to misspell words on purpose, for no other reason than to mess with people. Alan wore a Swiss brand, Swiss brand wristwatch from a manufacturer called Zodiac, a gift from his mother during a previous Christmas holiday, which included an eerily familiar cross-circle its, as its logo of choice. <sighs> An eventual search of his home yielded an uncovering what appeared to be materials for a bomb. Zodiac had previously claimed he had constructed a bomb and was planning to use it at some point in the future. He had also been fired from his job as an elementary school teacher for inappropriately touching a student and he had allegedly, according to Don Chaney, claimed he wanted to shoot out the tires of a school bus and pick off the little darling that they came out. A con man and club owner by the name of Ralph Spinelli, claimed that Allen had once entered his place of business, stepped into his office, and offered to be a bodyguard or enforcer for him. When Spinelli declined his services, he claimed Allen told him he was going to head to San Francisco and kill a cab driver. In Spinelli's words, he would later come back to the club sometime after the Stein murder, slyly bragging about what he'd done. Spinelli told him to get out of his office. Now, all of this seemed pretty damning, right? Well, consider some things that exist on the opposite end of the spectrum of belief. First, Don Cheney had already been made aware of Zodiac's crimes. He'd read about them in the papers, and as such, likely saw the madman's twisted works they had published in them. He also had grounds to throw dirt on Alan's character, alleging, given that he had allegedly inappropriately touched Cheney's young daughter a year prior, Secondly, his handwriting was not proven to be a match to the Zodiac Killer's handwriting. Ralph Spinelli, at the time of his own allegations, was up for an armed robbery rap and had an even lengthier rap sheet for petty crimes. In an attempt to get a lighter sentence for himself, he claimed he could divulge to the cops that he knew who the Zodiac Killer was. Not exactly a reliable, credible person to begin with. DNA tests performed on stamps from the Zodiac Killer's envelopes against the deceased Allen's DNA in 2002 proved that his DNA was not a match to those found on the stamps. Some have still managed to keep these wild theories alive, however, such as former San Francisco Chronicle cartoonist Robert Gray Smith, whose own obsession with the case spilled over into two books on the case, as well as a wildly popular 2007 film based on them titled Zodiac. The film itself is definitely entertaining and informative, but also holds a slant of bias towards Gray Smith and his favorite suspect, Arthur Lee Allen.
final thoughts. The Zodiac case is the American equivalent to Jack the Ripper in some respects. A shadowy, unknown killer lurking about, stalking his victims, and then striking them when they least expect it. He did leave behind traces, but it's to such a small extent that any DNA gained has only served to rule out suspects rather than outright confirm them. So if we're to gain any tangible thing in the context of this cold case, we must first attain a proper, complete DNA profile. Perhaps tested in a manner akin to the methods which were used to finally nab the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, through genealogy websites. It's proven useful in numerous other criminal cases that have previously been considered to have gone cold as well. I'd rather not get into the habit of dropping names, but suffice to say, I believe the Zodiac is someone who we, and even the original investigators, have never even considered to begin with. Hence, such difficulty with matching prints from the case. To this day, the case of the Zodiac Killer remains open in Napa, Vallejo, and San Francisco. Hopefully soon, someone will come forward, some crucial piece will be brought to light after decades of stagnation, and the bright, shining mirror of truth and justice will be held up to the metaphorical face of this troubling enigma, revealing the raging narcissist. One last time, I'm your host, Samuel Abels, and I hope you've gained something from our little talk. Good night, and peace be with you.